Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. We are doing this series according to the Spirit. We've been in it now since the beginning of the year, which is just kind of crazy to me. Kent's record for the longest series is 28 weeks, and I'm like, I'm, I'm coming for you, bro. <laughs> like, not really, but um, I just, I've realized that over this time, what we're kind of doing is, is we're building out practices. That's what we've been talking about. Practices that don't just have us doing things to look like holy people, but doing things so that we might, uh, like a ship, we might hoist sails so that as the wind blows and as the Spirit blows and as the Spirit leads, we would be uh, practiced up in a way, we'd be built up in a certain way that we'd be able to go according to the Spirit. And we'd be able to go where the Spirit would take us and do the things that the Spirit would have us do. And today, what I want to talk about, uh, we talked about money last week, so it feels like it'd be a good week to talk about emotional health this week. And nobody said amen. You know, I just don't think there's a coincidence there. Like it's, it makes sense to me, but um, I really think like emotional health is a valuable thing. It's certainly become a buzzword in our culture over the last 10, 15 years or so. And actually when I first came on staff, I jumped in uh, in 2017 and the leadership team at that time was going through this book, Emotionally Healthy Church by Pete Scazzaro. And, and the premise of that book was basically the emotional health of your core leadership team is going to uh, dictate or might limit the emotional health of the entire church. And so that's an intimidating thought. And I'm grateful that as a leadership team, we're kind of pressing in and learning. But I came in like eight tenths of the way through that book. And so I don't know if, like, it just sort of felt like, I've never experienced this actually in person, but like, it felt like I just got dropped in the middle of like intense therapy after all of the like crying and screaming and fighting had already happened. There'd been some rejoicing and some making up. And, and I just kind of came in and I was like, well, like y'all have been through some stuff recently. And, and uh, it was, it's good and we've grown and we've been learning and we've still been pursuing that. Um, but Pete Scazzaro, really, I would, I would highly recommend his stuff. If you're interested in what we're talking about today, uh, the nature of one sermon is I'm only gonna skim the surface of this topic. And, and, and in Pete's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, I would recommend that to anyone if this sort of piques your curiosity today. But he has this statement, really the premise of the book is emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It's not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And so we can all think of that person, right? It's, it's not us, it's, it's somebody else we can think of that has been going to church long, for a long time and, and yet they're still in this spiritual or emotional infancy or immaturity and we wonder what, what's happening there. What are some of the roadblocks? I want to look at some of the tendencies that we have today. But before we get there, I think it's worth mentioning, like, why, why care about emotional health? Why, why is this statement uh, even possibly true? And I think to start with, the conversation has to begin with, man, our God is a God who has emotions. He has emotions. So like in Paul writes, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Grieving the Holy Spirit. You think about the Holy Spirit being heartbroken at what's happening. And the context in which he writes that is, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by using malice or slander towards another image bearer of God. And so what grieves the Holy Spirit, what makes him sad, is when we use our words either out of a tone of anger or out of content to look down on another person and to speak contrary to what the Holy Spirit's been trying to speak into their life as an image bearer of God. So that's the context that grieves the heart of God. The, the first three fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, and peace. Those are things you feel. 
Those are emotions that we have. And, and, and the fruit of the Spirit is not this call to be like, okay, there's nine more things I need to do. I need more loving, I need more patient, kind, gentle. Like these are things I need to do. But rather, the fruit of the Spirit is the byproduct of an abiding relationship with the God of the universe who then begins to create his nature in us. And so I get to be more loving, more joyful, more peace-filled by being in relationship with God, but then he puts that nature inside of me so that I might demonstrate it to the world around me. But those are emotions, like those are things you feel. I think of Jesus. Jesus walked as, as the perfect embodiment of both God and man while he walks on the earth doing the Father's will, following after God, led by the Holy Spirit, is always demonstrating emotions. Like, is he not just, you, you, John eleven thirty five? 35, come on, shortest passage in your Bible. You probably haven't memorized. It's Jesus wept. There you go. If you didn't know that one, I just gave you a scripture to memorize for the week. You're, you're one step ahead. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He, he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's weeping. He's, he's so sorrow filled at the time because of what's coming to him on the cross. And he's weeping so hard that he's actually producing blood from his own skin. Like he feels these emotions. He's, he's moving and doing things with compassion, with empathy towards the hurting and the broken people around him. He cares. He gets involved. Uh, maybe you guys, have you seen this picture of Jesus, right? Like, I think we've all, if you've been around church long enough, you've seen this picture, but, but go there with me. I don't have a picture of it, but you can see it in your mind's eye. I know it. Jesus is like sitting on a rock under a tree and there's like kids around him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, there's like several of you nodding right now. He's really white in this picture, which is historically like a joke. You know what I mean? He, he would have been Middle Eastern for sure. Not white, but that's a different sermon for a different day. But he's, he's in this picture and and like there's kids all around him. And it's reflecting that verse where Jesus says, let the children come to me. And so like, I know a couple different kinds of people. There are people that kids like and people that kids don't like. And the people that kids like are, are joy-filled. They're happy. They're expressive. They have a personality about them. They're not crusty and stingy and cold and, and distant, right? But Jesus has this personality. Uh, Jesus, Jesus uh, emotes anger. I know we like to make a homeboy out of Jesus. We like to pretend that he's like super cool to always be around. And we forget the fact that Jesus, in, in, a, in a fit of anger, makes a whip. You ever, like you read the story when he drives out the, the money changers in the temple and he flips over all those tables and he's doing it because there's the religiously superior crowd that is oppressing the people from having access to buy sacrifices, to make sacrifices to God. And so Jesus shows up in that context and he takes the, like, this is what's crazy. He takes the time to make a whip, to then start going crazy, flipping tables, getting everybody out of the temple. He's angry. He's angry at times. Jesus has all these different emotions. Then uh, God the Father has emotions that we mostly think of as just rage and anger, right? We think of like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And, and we have this, 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 misaligned view of scripture where we think that the God of the Old Testament is angry, but then he like takes a chill pill and then the New Testament happens and he's all happy in the New Testament. And, and when you really study it further, you see that God is enraged most at the things that create distance between that which he loves most. Because God so loved the world. God is a God of love. He doesn't love just like, it's not something he does. It's who he is. It's who he is. He's a God of love. And because he is a God of love and he adores his creation, he's capable then of wrath and anger because it takes love to incite anger. I've, told, I've said this before. I've said it a hundred times. You come to my house and you steal my rake. 
My rake's a $3 rake. I got it from Walmart 10 years ago. I don't care about that rake. I'd actually be glad if you stole my rake. I don't love it at all. But if you came and you tried to steal that which is most important to me, you would incite all of my wrath and all of my rage. And so this is, this is how we have to look at sin, that God doesn't deal lightly with sin. God doesn't, isn't dismissive about sin. God hates sin. He, he abhors it. It is what separates him from the object of his most intense love, which is us. And so sin and rebellion and injustice are all things God hates because it separates him from that which he loves. So our God is a God of emotions. He emotes, he feels, and we are created in his image. And so therefore we have emotions. We have emotions. And, and I think we, we need to talk about emotional health and emotional health according to the spirit. And so what we'll be looking at today is really, okay, how would the Holy Spirit of God lead me to use my emotions? Because my, my, the question is not like, do I feel or do I not feel? But the question is, what do I do with those feelings? Where do I let those feelings and those emotions take me? I couldn't have asked for a better sermon analogy yesterday. My kids just delivered one right on the spot, which is always awesome. Um, I'm sitting there in my living room. I'm working on my outline and, and my daughter comes upstairs and she's like, uh, Dad, Harrison punched me. I was like, praise the Lord. I'm talking about emotional health uh, this week. So I'm all studied up. I'm ready to have this conversation. Please send your brother upstairs, right? And uh, he comes up and I'm like, dude, bro, like what gives? You can't punch your sister. What, like, why'd you, why'd you hit her? He's like, well, Dad, I was just so mad at her. <laughs> I was so mad at her. So I punched her in the chest. And I'm like, dude, like be angry and do not sin is what Paul writes. Well, he says, it's not this problem of actually feeling the emotion. I would say like what we're after today is not like not stifling all of our emotions. Like to just, if, you're, if we're singing that song just now and like then came the moment his, like, the, his buried body began to breathe out of the silence. The roaring line declared the grave has no claim on me. If there's not a little part of you that doesn't emote a bit, that's concerning. It's concerning to me. We should be incited with joy, with hope, with gladness for what God has done for us. And so, like, it's not about stifling our emotions and not feeling. I think sometimes when we have this conversation of emotional health, we want to reduce it down to, well, you're just like, you're too emotion filled. You need to like, just chill out a little bit. Did you ever hear the story of the husband um, who told his wife to just calm down when they were in the middle of a fight? <laughs> yeah, no, because that dude's dead, right? Like he, <laughs> he's gone. It's not about having no emotion, but it's also not about just emotions for emotion's sake. That's emotionalism. That's not what we're after either. It's not just about feeling, just for feelings. It's where do my emotions take me? Where do my emotions take me? Because uh, my anger can be incited when I start thinking about uh, the children that are trafficked in Southeast Asia. And I start to think about the partnership that we have with Life for the Innocent. And I think about those little girls and those little boys and how they're traded as a commodity to be used. And I can get angry and I can use that anger and I can channel that anger to go, God, how can I get involved? How can I do something? I see oftentimes I think emotions, what they can be at, when we're using them rightly is a catalyst to care about the things that God cares about, to do the things that God would lead us to do. And at worst, when they're corrupted, they are, we are led by emotions to do the things that our flesh wants to do, not led according to the spirit, and it can lead us to sin. 
Like, listen, I'm not perfect in this. And so as we go through this list, just know the Lord got me first as we go through this, okay? The Lord got me first. I realize that there there have been times I have friends in this room who can attest to the fact that I have acted less than saved when there's bad officiating at a basketball game. Like there are things that can incite my anger and I'm not perfect in this and you're not perfect in this either. So let's get into the text, amen? So there's four primary areas I think that we can all too often as Christians, longtime Christians, operate in emotional unhealth. And I've labeled the four and we've had different stories to go along with each. And so the first one that I wanna look at is, um, I simply wanna call it being self-unaware. Self-unaware. If you start to look at emotional health, like I've said, it's, it's a buzzword in our culture. And so if you look at it, even from like a psychological perspective, a, a non-Christian perspective, almost always they're going to start the conversation of emotional health, starting with self-awareness. And so a tendency, a mark of being emotionally immature would being self-unaware. Uh, again, like we were driving home last night and God was just like, I've got a great example for you to use in the sermon tomorrow morning. And we left a meeting here, Katie and I with the kids in the car and we were driving home. It was dark outside. It was nighttime and we're getting ready. Uh, we're at a red light. Katie's driving and the light turns green and she starts to go and then she lurches. She stops real quick. And I'm like, oh, what the heck? And then, and then there's a car coming the other way because again, the, light, the lights were green. This other car is going and this car honks. I'm like, what's going on? There's, a, there's people crossing the street. Like it was nighttime. You couldn't even barely see them. And these people, when they got honked at, lost their minds. I mean, they just started cussing like crazy, started flipping people off. And it was just like, you are in the wrong. Like you're the ones who messed up. This is not our fault. This is not my fault. Like we're literally trying to keep you from getting greased on the sidewalk right now. That person who honked their horn isn't a jerk. They're just trying to save you, right? And so as these people finished crossing the street, I could only imagine as they began to keep walking home, they're probably like, those jerks honking their horn at us. And I'm just like, they were saving your life. They were trying to keep someone from hitting you, but but they were so unaware in that moment. Their self-awareness was poor. It was non-existent. Like they, they should not have been crossing the street right then. And yet like that's how we can tend to operate sometimes. I think of the story of Abraham. I don't have a specific verse we're going to look at, but, but Abraham, if you're reading through Genesis, makes this mistake where, where he p- tries to pass off his wife as his sister to save his own bacon. And he's like, oh, I don't want to, uh, uh, you know, uh, she's my sister. It's all good. It's my sister. Don't kill us, you know. And then you're like, that's a weird story, right? Anyone just read that, read that and you're like, that's, that's odd. Like, how did he come up to that conclusion? But then a few chapters later, what happens? He does it again. He makes the same mistake again. And then what's really interesting about that is in a few chapters after that, Isaac, his son, makes the same mistake again. Three times in Genesis, you're going to read of this story of of a husband trying to pass off his wife as his sister to get out of trouble. So there's this element of generational mistakes where where mom, dad, maybe made a mistake and I'm perpetuating a mistake that, that I'm unaware that I'm even making this way that I'm operating, this mode of behaving where I'm unaware, and the problem is always this blind spot. We've all got a blind spot somewhere. Everyone's got something that's going on in your life that you can't see that other people can see. And, and, and the, the, the key is, I think the key, the remedy is, is you have a blind spot in your life. You need revelation for what's going on. And so hopefully, like in your life somewhere, you have space for listening prayer. Right? I didn't say just prayer in general, listening prayer, where you're just quiet before the Lord. And you, and you pray things like, like we see in Psalm 139, search me, God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
Like, like is your prayer life, do you sit down ever and you just go, God, will you just faithfully show me what I'm doing wrong? Do I have any blind spots, Lord? And then you just sit and say nothing. You just wait for the Spirit of God to show you something. Like we all, we all have these blind spots. We all have patterns of behavior that are unhealthy that we might, not even not, we might not even know that we're doing them. And so I think the other thing that you can do is you can get some wise counsel to weigh in on your life. So this is where, um, I, I, like, I am not a counselor or a therapist or a professionally trained psychologist, right? We all get that? And so I think that, I think that at times there's this really unhealthy stigma that exists towards those kinds of services in the church world specifically that I think we have work to do in breaking down that unhealthy stigma. That people who go to therapy, people who go to counseling should be ashamed and should be embarrassed. No, that's, that's not how it should be. Like, I'm, I'm good with people getting advice and getting counsel. I think at the same time, though, we ought to be mindful that the field of psychology in and of itself is steeped in humanistic and secular thinking. And so we ought to be mindful about the people who are weighing into the most tender parts of my soul, trying to reveal blind spots to me. Do those people that are speaking into my life, do they operate from a Christian worldview or not? Do they see humanity from a Christian, from a biblical perspective or not? I'm all good with getting a plurality of voices speaking into your life so long as the primary voice that's speaking to your life is that of the Holy Spirit. So you should be praying. You should be reading scripture. You should be understanding, getting to know the, the good. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says, and my sheep know my voice. We should be listening to him. And but from there, I'm like, man, yeah, go get it. Go, like, go get a coach. Go get a counselor. Go get someone who will weigh in. Just make sure you're thoughtful in the fact that do they approach these issues in my heart, in my life from a Christian perspective, okay? But I think we have some work to do in demolishing that stigma that creates shame and creates guilt for people who want to go get that kind of help. Like, I think we should have people weighing in to help us see our blind spots because we've all got them. We all operate in some sense of self-unawareness of a pattern of behavior that we have somewhere. And that's why you need good friends. That's why you need the Holy Spirit of God speaking to you. And that's why, man, yeah, go get a coach, go get a counselor. I think all of that stuff is great and can be helpful. The other thing that we tend to do, I'm just gonna call it blame shifting. Blame shifting. Uh, The most classic story of this is gonna be found in Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve sin. They do the one thing that God tells them not to do. And here's how the story goes. Genesis chapter three, it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And for the first time ever, maybe the most heartbreaking sentence in all of scripture, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was a naked because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then the next verse goes on to say this, the man said, catch this, man's guilty. He's feeling, he's feeling the guilt and the shame of his sin and he's hiding in the bush. And then God's like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, that woman that you gave me, do you see points both ways? He, 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 he blame shifts onto two different people. He says, well, it was mostly her fault, also kind of your fault for giving her to me. She gave me the fruit and so I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman says, well, that snake, I, like it was, it was that snake that deceived me. Do you see the blame shifting that's going on? They, they, they're not seeing, even though they know in their heart that they are personally responsible for what they have done, they choose then in the moment of accusation to shift the blame onto somebody else. And we do the same thing. 
We do the same thing. There are so many instances, whether, whether it's you blaming your kids for how they're acting in the store, whether you're blaming your parents for how they treated you and that's why you operate this way, whether you're blaming a coworker at work, a boss who's incapable of leading you the right way, whether you're blaming uh, the, the, the person in your group project that, Lord help them, they're not doing any work and they're bringing the whole group down. Everybody knows that person. But you don't get to blame everybody else for the things that are going on in your life. And eventually, like, listen, I, I love you. If you're, if you're continually blaming what, like, somebody else for something that they did to you, and, and I get it, like, some people have done some terrible things to other people, but if you continue to operate in a way that just blames them, and you never actually stop for a second to go, okay, wait, I don't have to act like this anymore, and you have this moment of accepting personal responsibility for something that you've done, something you continue to do, like if you haven't taken personal responsibility for something that's, that you've done in your life that you know you've done wrong, then chances are you haven't personally received Jesus as a personal savior. Because if you never actually come to this point where you personally recognize that I am deficient and I have fallen short of the glory of God, then you will never cry out for his perfect sacrifice for you. Because you're not totally convinced that you need it. And so we have to, when when we catch ourselves trying to blame shift, we have to determine, okay, where was I wrong in this? Because in almost every instance of personal conflict, there's some fault on both sides. I mean, almost always there's some, like each person could have done some things better. And here's what we got to do. We got to embrace the fact that we're all imperfect. Every single one of us is imperfect. Every single one of us needs the grace of God. And so we got to personally take responsibility for what we've done so that we would actually then embrace the grace of God. Embrace God's grace because he has, he has reached out to you despite of what you've done. It doesn't, it, wherever you find yourself, whatever mistake you find yourself in the middle of, his grace is available to you. So we can't blame shift. We have to recognize that God is gracious. God, there is none perfect, no, not one. God has saved us in spite of our imperfections. The third one that we'll talk about is deflection. Deflection or deflecting trying to keep people away from the, the part of you that hurts the most. And this is something I think we're all too good at, and it comes out of one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture in John chapter 4. If you have your Bible and you want to open this, we're going to read a little more of this passage. It'll also be on the screen. But so Jesus is approaching this Samaritan woman in the middle of the day. Uh, a couple cultural issues that we have going on in this moment. Uh, Jesus is a Jew, and he's a man. He had no reason, no business dealing with this woman who was a Samaritan. They, they, they should not have been in the same space together, really. The other problem that's going on is this woman is at the well in the middle of the day. Women didn't go to the well in the middle of the day traditionally or culturally. They went in the morning with other women. They wouldn't have gone alone. And so we have some clues here as to what's going on. This woman is hiding from something. She's ashamed of something that we're going to read about and figure out more about, but she's, she's concealing something from the world around her and she doesn't want to go to the well when all the rest of the women go to the well. She wants to go by herself later in the day where she can't be seen. And so we pick it up in verse 7. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. I, you would have think Jesus would say please, but, um, you know. <laughs> The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. I want you to read the pain in her response. I don't want to come to this well anymore. I don't want all these people to keep judging me. I don't want the shame that keeps getting brought out as soon as I keep coming back to this well. I keep hiding. Give me this water. I would love to never have to make this stop again in my life. Where is it that I can find this water where I won't get thirsty? Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. Notice the deflection right away. Woman answered him, I don't have a husband. Jesus is like, okay, like you're going you're gonna to do it this way. Okay, um, you're right in saying that you don't have a husband. For you have had five, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus just, notice how he goes straight for what's hurting the most. The source of her pain. This is a town, like people probably would have known her. People would have known her story. It's, it's that woman. Keeps going from dude to dude. And the guy she's with now, he's, you know, Apparently she's a little shady. He's not willing to tie down the knot with her. And, and Jesus, Jesus is like, this is what's wrong. This is what's wrong. Go get your husband and fix this. I don't have a husband. Yeah, I know. You've had five. The one that you have now isn't your husband. And he goes right to her wound. He doesn't just bring up conflict for conflict's sake. That, that would make him a jerk. Jesus actually goes right into the space that's hurting the most because he is the only one that can offer living water. He's the only one that can offer to heal, to mend, to soothe this pain that is in her heart. And so the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, (laughs) right? Jesus like reads her mail, tells her all about her life. And she's like, so, all right, you've got some prophetic gifting going on. Um, And our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Notice this, notice this, this is pivotal. As soon as Jesus tries to go right for the heart, she tries to make a spiritual conversation out of it. She tries to deflect using the Bible. And I just wonder if that happens all too often in our churches, in our small groups. And we sit around a table and we have a meal and we'd so much rather talk about all these different funny little tertiary theological points. We'd rather bicker and argue about, well, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And, and the whole time we have somebody sitting at the table whose life is a mess, whose heart is, is hurting, whose marriage is a wreck, whose kids are just rebelling, who, who needs something. And we spend the whole time having these spiritual conversations, driving around, deflecting around the conversation that needs to happen, but never being willing to go there. And I just want to show you, like, Jesus, Jesus drives into this pain so that he can reveal who he really is and say, this is what I'm after. I'm after your heart. I want to heal this thing that's broken in you. Here I am, this living water. It is me. That's how he ends the story. I am the fountain of living water. So we can't make this pattern of deflecting. Like, there are some of you in this room, and you have deep hurts in your heart. And maybe somebody else put them there. Maybe you, it's because of something you did. Maybe it's because of something that you have going on in your life. I, I don't know what it is, but what I know is that Jesus is after that which is most hurting in you. He's not just most pleased with you based on like these good things you do. He's not pleased with you now because you're in church or when you open up your Bible and you have your quiet time with your coffee in the morning and that's when he's close to you. He's also close to you when you're in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your brokenness, the thing that's hurting the most inside of you that you're convinced God is farthest from, that's where he's at too. 
That's where he's going with the woman at the well. He's saying, no, I want all of you. I am here to heal you. I'm healed, here to put this back together and fix you. I am the living water. You can't get it out of this well. I'm offering it to you. And so we can't have this pattern of cheap conversation, like flippant arguments over this little theological point. Like eventually we've got to sit down and we've got to say, this is what's going on in my heart. This is what's hard right now. And so we cannot get into deflecting. The last one that we'll talk about is operating from insecurity. Operating from insecurity. That's another mark of the emotionally immature. Uh, when I think of Bible characters operating out of insecurity, you, you almost have to go to King Saul. King Saul, uh, he, he, is, he is, from the very moment he's chosen to be king of Israel, he, he's immediately insecure. And that insecurity then marks his life as Israel's king. And, and so, like, I was reading, Paul, or, uh, I was reading Saul's story, sorry, and, and going back, it is, it is rather odd, right? You come to Israel in this moment, if you don't know the story, where, where God is saying, I am your king, I am your king, I am your king. And Israel's like, well, see, you know, the thing about it is everyone else has like a human king, so we'd really like one of those. And God's like, all right, fine. I'll give you a human king. And, and then, he come, you, then you go right into the story of Saul and, and it starts with like, well, what are Saul's qualifications? Well, he's tall and handsome. Like I, I, like, I don't know, like as you're like voting for somebody for president of the United States, you're not like, well, how tall are they? You know, how, are, they, are they good looking or ugly? Like, well, you know, like, but that's, that's what we have for Saul. He's tall, he's good looking. And when he's, he, he encounters Samuel for the first time, he's out looking for his dad's donkeys. Like how weird of a story is this? Saul is like out trying to find his dad's donkeys. And then all of a sudden Samuel comes up and he says this to him. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is what he says after that. He says to him at first, he's like, you're going to be the king of Israel. You're going to be the king of Israel. And Samuel lays out for him. You're either going to be the king that follows after the rules that God has. You're going to follow after God or you're going to follow something else. And if you follow after God, it's going to go well with you. But if you don't, it's not going to go well. And as soon as Saul receives this call, he, he understands that God has called him to be the king. He's putting this identity on him. Saul answers, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? Do you hear the insecurity from the very beginning? He questions the calling that God has for his life. He said, dude, don't you know my family? I don't belong in this conversation. Like, I'm, we're from the clan, the humblest of all clans from the tribe of Benjamin. Why are you even speaking to me in this way? I, I don't belong in this conversation. I don't belong in that seat. But see, here's what's crazy. When God calls you for something, he qualifies you for something. If you're called, you're qualified. He doesn't qualify someone who's already been called. He calls people and he qualifies them himself. And so he, like, this is what happens though, is we, we tend to operate out of this insecurity primarily because we don't know our identity. So if you want to look and find any sense of insecurity in somebody, if you want to track in your own life where you're operating out of insecurity, it's almost always going to come down to misplaced identity. Misplaced identity. You have put your value, your worth, you have defined yourself in something other than a chosen, beloved, adopted son or daughter of the Most High King. So there's a few places that we normally run to when we misplace our identity. We try and identify ourselves by the things that we do, the things that we have, and what other people think of us. Those are the three primary areas we're going to keep coming back to where we say, I, I'm defined by, by what I do. I'm this big executive businessman. Um, I'm more important than I, I am the boss at this place. I, I know what I'm doing. I run this thing. And we put our identity there rather than understanding that it's not about what you did. It's about what God gave. 
And on the flip side of that same coin, we say, well, you know, I just, I just have had the same job for 30 years. I haven't really moved up. I'm not really, I'm not really amounting to much as far as the socioeconomic scale. I'm not that awesome. I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'm not that person. I'm not that woman. And God says, it's never about what you couldn't do. It's about what I could do. It's about what I could do. And then we have conversations around stuff where we put our identity in the things that we have. We live in the nice neighborhood. You live in the upgraded neighborhood. You live, you live here. You have these things. You drive this car. And we try and create this identity or this sense of wealth or this sense of, um, this sense of belonging, this sense of value based on what we have. God says it doesn't matter what you have. You're not bringing anything into the table in your salvation except for your surrender. It's not about what you brought to me. God's already got it all. Like God's got everything. He chose you because he loves you. It's not based on what you did or did not have. And then finally, like we will define ourselves based on uh, what other people think of us. And we'll, and we'll, let, we'll let the opinions of others kind of sway us into believing either lies or just inflated truth about who we actually think we are. And we'll rely on other people's identity to feel good someday, to feel lonely other days, to feel valuable, to feel important. And, and I think like if we just embraced and understood that God has called us, his son, his daughter, our identity would change. So like, I was thinking about this, that um, you remember back on like elementary school days where you, if there was some sort of conflict on the playground, you know, you started rolling with some kids you should have been rolling with. And all of a sudden you're, you're maybe fighting with somebody. Uh, if you had a healthy relationship with your dad, um, what, was the, what was it that the argument always came down to at the end of the day? Well, my dad can beat up your dad. You know what I'm saying, right? Where it was like, it was like yeah, well, okay. Well, so, well, listen, hey, my dad could beat up your dad. You know what I'm saying? If, like, if, again, if you had a healthy relationship with your dad, it probably eventually those words came out of your mouth at some point where you just thought your dad was awesome. You had all the confidence in the world because of who your father was. And that should be the case for us. We should have all the confidence in the world because we trust in who our father is. My dad's prepared a place for me. Do you know where I'm going someday? I don't find my identity here in this stuff. I don't find my identity in what, what belongings and things and possessions that I have. Have you seen the place my dad's preparing for me? Have you read about this place that my dad has for me to go where there's gonna be no more sickness, no more pain, nothing's gonna fade, nothing's gonna ever break down or destroy. Like he's got this place prepared for me. Man, do you know who my dad's called me? My dad's called me more than a conqueror in his name. I'm more than a conqueror in Christ. He's got my back. He's with me. He's empowering me. Like the confidence that I think the church needs right now is to not trust in this faux identity we've created because, well, I vote this way. I have this much stuff. I do these things. People think this about me, but rather the church needs to embrace the identity that I have cried out to the king of the universe. The king of kings calls me his own. I am a son. I am a daughter of his. I belong to him. There's nothing you can take from me. There's nothing that you can use to define who I am. I belong to him and him alone. And when you have that identity, all of a sudden the insecurities that you used to have, the things that make you shaky about finances, the things that make you shaky about friendships and relationships and what people think of you and what might get taken away from you, what you might lose, all of a sudden you go, no, listen, have you seen my dad? He's got it all. He's got it all and he has me. He's chosen me. He's called me. And so I think really um, what we need to observe in these four stories is that the baseline where emotional health is going to come from, if we're ever going to break out of operating from insecurity, if we're going to ever break free from this pattern of blame shifting, if we're ever going to break free from, from this like blind spot that we have in our life, if we're ever going to get liberated from that, what we have to understand on a fundamental level is in each of these stories, God moved 
towards his creation. So like God, God doesn't, he's not most available to you when you are most following after him. God is consistently faithful even when you have become faithless. So even in the most ugly parts of you, man, some of you walked in here and you, you may be just plagued with shame, plagued with guilt, plagued with insecurity. You're questioning it all. And I just want to say the fact that you're here today is proof positive that God is trying to initiate a relationship with you. Like he's after you. He's bringing you to himself because he's the only source for emotional health, for your emotional well-being, for your spiritual well-being. He's the only place you can go. He is the living water. And so for all of us today, I know there's so many people in this room and you've been following Jesus for a long time. And my hope is that you can look through this list and you can go, okay, wait, I have this tendency to op in this in operate in this insecurity here. I have this tendency to, to misplace my identity here. I have this tendency to kind of conceal and try and deflect this wound that I have. And for all of us following Jesus, like I hope you can take some things and you can run back to the grace of God, run back to the identity you have in Christ, get some people in your life who are in your corner. You can listen to the voice of God. But for those of you who don't yet know who Jesus is and you don't know him personally, I want to say like you can, you can get all the counseling help you want. You can get all the therapy that you want to get. But until Jesus actually meets you in your pain, you're never going to be healed. Like you can get soothed and you can get you can get medicated in different ways to help maybe help manage some of the stuff that's going on in your life. But if you want to address the issue, if you want to heal the problem, it's Jesus. And he's wooing you to himself right now. And so I just, I want to pray right where we're at. And if we could all, I know we usually stand up when we're done, but if we can just sit down and if we can just be still and we can be quiet, and we can close our head or we can close our eyes and bow our heads. Come on, you know what I'm saying. If we can just pray. And so for those of you who just, you're sitting right there in your seat right now, you're like, I don't really know if I've ever taken personal responsibility for some of the things that have gone wrong in my life. And if I could just surrender that to the perfect Savior of Jesus, I just want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. So you can just pray this with me. God, I have fallen short. I've fallen short and I need you to save me. I trust in you. I believe in you. I put my hope in you. God, I just, I give you my heart. I give you my life. And I ask that you would save me. That I would let you rule in my heart. Would you reign over my life? If you could distill down the word concept of salvation into one word, it would be surrender. So if you want help to get healing from all the things that have gone on, the insecurities you have, the baggage you have, the hurts that you have, God just wants you to surrender your life to him right now. So God, we surrender to you in Jesus' name. Listen, if that was you and you just prayed that prayer, just kind of confessed that way for the first time, um, I just want to invite you. Our prayer team is going to be down front here after the service. I'm going to be down front here after the service. I just want you to talk with somebody that maybe even you came with about that decision you just made. So that moment will change everything for you. And you're not going to be healed in the sense that everything's better in a moment. You're going to need a people to belong to now. And I hope you find a home here. For all the rest of us, I want to just pray now. If you want to stand with me, I want to pray. We would actually cultivate, we'd pursue emotional health 
that we'd see how it impacts and affects our relationship with Jesus and that we too would be surrendered to him. And so God, help us. Help us see the things we cannot see. Speak to us, God. Show us if there's any offensive ways that are in us. God, we are yours. You're the Lord of our life. You didn't just save us in one moment, but we give you our life continually. And we just ask for you to continue to reign and to rule and to heal and to restore all the hurting and all the broken and all the most tender parts of who we are. Jesus, we give ourselves to you. I pray that you would meet people in this church body with just tremendous good friends who would say, hey, the crosswalk is closed right now. You're doing something and you don't even realize you're doing it and you need to be saved. Would we, would we be sensitive to, would we be receptive to people who are lovingly speaking into our life? But God, we as a people, I pray what would mark this church is we are primarily fed and listening to your voice, God. God, I pray for specifically that if there is generational sin, if there are generational wounds, if there are generational hurts that are just continually being passed down, I pray that those would be broken today in the name of Jesus. God, just because their dad did doesn't mean they have to. God, just because their mom did doesn't mean they have to. God, would you help us all as parents to imperfectly parent our kids as well? We just pray against the enemy having any foothold in issues that we have in our heart, in our life, that that wouldn't be perpetuated for generations to come, but rather we surrender to you, the God who is perfect, to cover our imperfections. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. The church said, amen. Amen.